Last night in her opening talk, Sharon said a, a great thing that one of her teachers told her that the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem and now it's up to us to solve our problem. I thought, just to talk a little bit, the first question that comes up is, what actually is our problem? And then how does this practice help us to solve it? Which I don't claim to answer all of that in one talk, but we'll just begin the process, hopefully. Actually, I think our problem is very simply put, that we want to be happy and we don't know how. We think we know how, and that's the problem, (laughs) because it doesn't work. And until we stop and really pay attention, we don't realize, A, we don't even realize that it's not working. We don't even know what we're doing, never mind that it's not working or how. So what our practice is about is stopping and taking a look at what's really going on as opposed to what we think is going on, which there can be a wide difference between those two things in any given moment. It's said that one of the things that motivated the Buddha to teach, rather than just hang out in Nibbana for 45 years, was that by looking through the world, he could see with his omniscient Buddha eye just the fact that everyone is united in wanting to be happy, but that we do just the things in pursuing our happiness that keep us spinning and suffering. Just the things we do to be happy are the very things that keep us lost in confusion. And so he taught out of great compassion. So we get so hooked into somehow trying to manipulate, control, rearrange our environment, our outer environment, our inner environment, to somehow manage experience in such a way that will finally hit that place of lasting happiness. And the kind of the cosmic joke, in a way, is that it's this very trying to manipulate that keeps us from noticing the fact that basic peace and ease, basic um, goodness, as Jogim Trungpa calls it, is actually available. It's who we are here and now, in this moment, in every moment, and we don't know how to notice it. We don't know how to recognize what's really true and what we're actually running after trying to find is already here. But it's not what we think, you know. We're looking for some big goodies, some final blast, some incredible bliss, some pleasant experience that never goes away. And when that doesn't happen, we don't remember to turn around and notice that peace, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, peace is available, happiness is available, please help yourself. We keep going, no thank you, I think I'll look over this way and see if it's somewhere else. Chungfu's phrase is rediscovering our basic goodness. That, to me, is really what our meditation practice is about. Not to create some special state, not to become Olympic meditators, but to rediscover our basic goodness, which is available in each and every moment of experience. So we've got to learn how to notice that how to see it, or hear it, or feel it, or be it. So what stands in the way, seemingly? Just think about today, because a day here, the things that happen here, it's a microcosm of our life. You know, whatever tendencies of your mind are happening here, they didn't just arise for the first time today. I really will bet that for anybody, you know. This is a microcosm of our life. So... Have you had an experience today of being totally at ease, at peace, at one with whatever happened throughout the whole day? Feeling of (laughs) no. You might have had some moments of that, and that's really important to notice. But when you think about 
and not trying to be tricky, but just the normal way our mind thinks. Well, what, what was in the way today? Why wasn't I happy? What was the problem? And, you know, there's a whole variety of things. Um, I was sleepy. My knees hurt. I kept having this unpleasant memory. It's not nearly as nice as it was two days ago. I should have come to another retreat because I have all this unfinished business at home or I had a headache or I didn't bring the right pillow or whatever it happens to be. And we really, we really get involved in thinking that these particular things are our problem, whether it's an internal experience of pain or sleepiness or boredom or restlessness or the externals of the person sitting next to me is the wrong person to be sitting next to me, whatever it happens to be. But this is where we get so lost. We get so entranced by our reactions to experience that we mistake the reactions for what's, what's real and we pay so much attention to our reactions that we don't know how to turn our attention back to simply rest at ease in whatever's arising. And at the root, one of the deep patterns at the root of this, again, Sharon mentioned it last night and I want to talk about it a little, is that, that deep uh, misunderstanding that we often don't even recognize, that pleasant experience is what's going to give us happiness. An unpleasant experience is what's causing our suffering, and it's bad or a mistake. And as she said, neutral experience, we don't even know what's happening. So we make something up. The thing is, we make something up whether there's pleasant and unpleasant experience, too. We're making up the stories about what's happening continually. And when we don't recognize it, what we can end up doing in a day here or in our lives is spending our life chasing after pleasant experience, a pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant thought, a pleasant emotion, running away, doing everything we can to avoid or change or get rid of the unpleasant. And certainly if we have a choice, no one here is going to say, I think I will take restlessness and a pain in the knee as opposed to bliss because I really don't care. I can't tell the difference. And we're not talking about we're moving in that direction. But if you need the bliss to be happy and if you can't have sleepiness and find peace, then we're in big trouble because meditation doesn't mean that we get more and more pleasant experiences, like we're heading to some dreamland of constant pleasure and no more unpleasantness, and no more boredom. But isn't it easy to see how we slip into evaluating our experience in this way? And in our life, without realizing it, this is what can guide so many of our choices, of our decisions, and with all good intention, really trying to be happy, really trying to do what seems most important in life, we can end up so far from where we ever meant to be or what we ever thought was important and not quite get how we got there. This, this really moved me. It was an interview with Marlon Brando in a German magazine, so a friend translated it for me. He says, I was never a good father or a good husband. I was always busy with my own life. Now I'm a guilty old man who feels ashamed of his life. Besides food, there is nothing else in the world for me. That's the only thing in my life. I know this eating will kill me, but I just can't stop. It's intense. And this was a couple of years ago, so change is possible. You know, I actually read he was doing better somewhere. But that's an extreme of a state we can all get into by pursuing what we think is the best, but underlying it is the tendency to go after what is pleasant, whether it's like more money, a better career, or having people think well of us so we have a nice feeling about ourselves, whatever it is. Always looking for some reality other than this one in order to make things okay in order to find ease, in order to find peace. And we bring that tendency here, of course. 
And in doing that, if we don't stop to notice it, we're missing the truth. We're missing the secret, the secret of happiness, of our meditation, of happiness today in this next sitting, is that it really doesn't matter what's happening. See if you believe that. It really doesn't matter whether you're sleepy or whether you're really concentrated. Do you believe that? (laughs) It really doesn't matter. But when we get lost in our reactions, instead of being fully open-hearted and lovingly present with what is, that open-hearted connection allows any aspect of our experience to be the avenue in to re-recognizing our basic goodness, because it's always here. The only thing we have to do to recognize it is be fully present, awake, and non-judging in whatever's arising. The moment we're off into wanting something else, into pushing away experience, into getting lost in interpretation and extrapolation, what that's doing is just taking us out of being awake and present, and so we just can't recognize what's always here, that basic ease. This is an example of how ease, this natural peace, is available. It's a very simple example of being caught in a traffic jam. And uh, this is one time I remember I was on the way to an airport early in the morning, the Boston airport, to catch a, a flight to somewhere, Thailand or somewhere, some you know flight where you have to make connections and go overseas. And it was real early in the morning, like six. And if you know Boston at all, to get to the airport, you can come from all directions, but you end up funneling through this one tunnel and, you know, like, Ten different ways come down with not much form and structure into two lines going through this one tunnel. And so we were flying along at six in the morning, and uh, just before we were coming off the artery into the exit that still is about a mile down around to get to the tunnel, everything stopped dead just as we got into the line to get off. So it's the kind of place where there's nowhere to go. I mean, it stopped dead. It's not like there was really another route to take because you have to go through that tunnel unless you have an extra hour to go back around and from the north, which we didn't. And so it really was interesting <laughs> to watch my mind, <laughs> which of course didn't say, oh, well, let's just rest in natural great peace here until the traffic starts again. I mean, that's not our first usual reaction, although it can become that. You know, I fretted, I pretended that was my first reaction. Oh, yes, it's okay, let's just hang out, it's nice. And, you know, and underneath, let's go, let's go, let's go. It's been 20 minutes now, I'm going to miss the flight. Until the point when I actually consciously took my attention and turned it around onto my experience and met it fully. Oh, anxiety, tightness, pretense of being okay, you know. (laughs) But let me feel what's really going on. And in that willingness, and this is our mindfulness practice, to simply be fully present with that, without making a story, without projecting into the future, just feeling that anxiety, without adding to it, oh, okay, it's just what it is. And it stops defining our experience, and we can recognize the vastness of ease of heart that is always accessible. It's like, okay. The worst thing that can happen is I miss the flight. I mean, in the big scheme of things, so what? You know, I don't know any flight that is that life and death that I've ever taken, although they all feel that way. And when I really saw that, the situation didn't change, but the, the sense of really resting at ease, of reconnecting with natural peace was absolutely palpable. I'm not saying that's steady state. You know, the next moment it's very easy to lose it again because we're so inured to getting lost in the reactions. So our practice is simply to recognize the difference between the reactions and what's actually going on and just rest in what's going on. And in that, peace is always available. It's to learn to trust that. And to trust it is what allows us to open fully into experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. 
It's from a Tibetan text talking about this natural peace. Not knowing that this state is within oneself, how amazing that one searches for it elsewhere. Although it is clearly manifest, like the radiance of the sun, how amazing that so few see it. No matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing that it is never impaired or improved in the slightest. The state, it means, never impaired or improved. This self-awareness is naturally free from the very first. How amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease in whatever happens. I love that last line. Resting at ease in whatever happens. Participatory in whatever happens, not five feet away. That's our challenge. That's our practice. When we recognize it, even for a moment, there's the potential of finding our true refuge, our true home, once again, even if only for a moment, within the headache, within the back pain, within the fear. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, our capacity to wake up, to understand, and to love is our Buddha nature, and it's always here. Or as the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, meaning himself, namely liberation through non-clinging. That moment of just recognizing our basic goodness, we recognize it because the heart is not clinging to wanting things to be other. And we're awake. It's not, you have to be awake. You can't be totally zoned out and non-clinging. You have to be really awake and connected. (laughs) That kind of is the undercurrent. So we're learning both of these, how to recognize that. So how do we get so sidetracked? Why do we have this deep habit? Or why don't we recognize the deep habit? And as I said, um, it's really around our being so caught in the reactions to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that we don't even see that that's how we're evaluating experience through that filter. There's a, a great sutta from the Buddha. I really like it because it explains what we're doing that keeps our suffering going. It's called the two darts, like arrow, two darts. And someone's asking him, uh, what's the difference between basically an awakened being and we normal, we normal beings? And he says, uh, his word for we normal people is an untaught worldling. That's us. And we were sort of getting, you know, a little taught, but we're worldlings anyway. So he says, you know, we experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, and an awakened person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So what's the difference? And it's really interesting to hear that, because somewhere back there, don't you think, well, the Buddha didn't, didn't have problems? In the pain, you know, you transcend that. So he said the difference is when an untaught worldling experiences a painful, for example, a painful bodily feeling, painful sensation. He worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. <laughs> Thus he experiences two kinds of unpleasant feeling. <laughs> Unpleasant bodily and unpleasant mental feeling. I mean, it's very basic, right? But it's so true. And he says, it's as if a person were hit by a dart pierced by an arrow. And following the first piercing, he is hit by a second arrow. So that person experiences pain caused by two arrows. And that's what we do. In a similar way, when we have a painful or unpleasant feeling, physical, mental, or emotional we add to it by basically sticking ourselves with another arrow. 
And then, you know, of course, we judge ourselves for that, so we stick ourselves with another arrow. And I mean, he only had two, but, you know, we can really go on and on and on down that road. And then, yeah, he does say that, actually. So then being touched by that painful feeling, he resents it, you know. And because we resent the unpleasant, then we go looking for something pleasant. So then we get caught in lusting after some pleasant experience to get away from the unpleasant experience, and that becomes our pattern of mind. And he says, uh, when an awakened person is touched by a painful feeling, he experiences a painful feeling. That's it. (laughs) When he experiences a pleasant feeling, he experiences a pleasant feeling. That's it. It's so simple, we can't stand it. So we're hit by one dart, and we don't add another one to it. And that's the difference. That's really the difference. It's not so complicated. But it's not easy. So our practice isn't to say, okay, from now on, no more reactivity. That's already sticking yourself with a dart. Our practice is to learn how to see how this is happening. And it becomes fascinating rather than blameworthy. Like, wow, that's amazing. I can't just hear an unpleasant sound. I've got to bring in my past, my future, everything that's going to happen, what's wrong with all the other people here, and get into a complete knot of pain and aversion and everything else that goes back to my early childhood. (laughs) I mean, we laugh, but we do it, and it's, it's immense suffering. And we're not choosing to do it, God knows. But it really helps to begin to see what's actually happening here. Like a a good example, um, a few years ago, a couple years ago, uh, someone told me this uh, in an interview. It was after quite some days of the retreat. And she said, it's always nice when when you hear the story after it's been worked through, because you really see the power of, of our understanding what's really happening to bring us back to peace. But she said, uh, it was a metta retreat, actually, and she was starting to feel really concentrated, a lot of metta, and then she started to notice some ongoing noise in the hall, kind of a repetitive, ongoing noise. And she didn't say what it was, but I actually surmised she was sitting in the front row, and if you get really quiet, you can hear this clock ticking. (laughs) And I think that's what it was, but she didn't say And she said she went through days of so much anger and aversion. This sound was ruining her meditation. It was ruining her concentration. It was ruining her metta, implied but not said, you know. And she didn't go on, but I can certainly extrapolate all the things that would come out of that. I can't believe the teachers are so insensitive as to have a clock that ticks. You know, I can't, don't they know how sensitive, you know, it just goes on and on, whatever your proclivity is. And then one day she said, she heard us say for about the 10 millionth time, when an experience arises, bring your kind and full attention to the bare sense experience itself. So hearing, bring your attention to hearing. So she said, oh, maybe I'll try that. (laughs) Brought her experience right into the hearing, without holding back, without making a story, just meet it fully. And she said, oh, hearing, it's unpleasant. That was it. And she said, oh, oh, the sound wasn't disturbing my concentration. My mind was disturbing the concentration. Or Ajahn Chah had a great line, you know, and the sound arises, it doesn't disturb us. It's we who go out and disturb the sound. (laughs) All that suffering, that's the second dart. That's the second arrow. It's all extra. Once we can learn how to bring wise attention to what's really going on. That's where the uh, skill of our practice comes in. That's where we are developing here with mindfulness the tool of wise attention to help us see what's really happening. It's often counterintuitive because 
as I, I'll go, I'll, as I described it a little more, you'll see, especially if something's unpleasant, the wise attention says, bring your whole full-hearted, no-holding-back awareness right into the experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And what we feel is our intuition is saying, let me get as far away from this as possible. The thing is, that's not our intuition. That's our habit that says pleasant is bad and pleasant is good and unpleasant is bad and I have to somehow control this, which we can't. So it's a little counterintuitive, but it's radical. It's a radical change because as soon as we give up fighting and controlling and manipulating, just drop into that, oh, hearing, unpleasant. It, I mean, it doesn't work like a charm every time because we have to be really wholehearted and awake. But when we are, there's that moment when it all just vanishes. And there's hearing and unpleasant, and that's it. Natural great peace, our basic goodness. So our path of wakefulness and compassion to ourselves and others is not about cultivating some really far-out, incredible state of mind and heart that's going to last us for the rest of our life. But it's transforming our life by transforming how we relate to our life. And the little things that happen here are the stuff of our whole life. It's just in this little microcosm. No amount of meditation is going to stop illness, old age, disease, and death. It's going to stop separation and loss. No amount of meditation is going to make everything in the world hunky-dory, get rid of injustice and poverty. It just doesn't happen. But it does, the meditation, the mindfulness practice, it gives us the tools to see clearly, to meet our experience wholeheartedly, and to come out of a life of reactivity, dissatisfaction, and fear, and into a life of wholehearted connectedness to ourselves, to others, to a life that allows us to trust in the true potential of resting at ease in whatever arises, rather than thinking we have to manipulate and control and keep everything at bay, because that is such a difficult and tension-producing state. And our basic tool is that of mindfulness, of wise attention, learning how to pay attention and what to pay attention to. What and how do we pay attention in a way that keeps us coming back to clear knowing, to clear seeing, to open-heartedness? How do we meet this moment with balanced awareness, Sylvia's, as Sylvia said this morning? That's really what mindfulness and wise attention are about. This word, wise attention, the Pali, the Pali word for it, the Pali is the language the first Buddhist texts were written in, Yoniso Manasikara. You don't have to remember that, but I'm saying it because I was talking to Andy Alensky, who's the executive director of the study center, and he's a Pali scholar. If you didn't know, he's our resident Pali scholar, so we always go to him for, you know, he's very insightful with translations and history and stuff. So I said, you know, what exactly... How do you translate Yoniso Manasikara? And it's very interesting. And I, granted, this is a little twist of his, but I love it in this, in this uh, reference, frame of reference of how to pay attention. The word Yoniso comes from the word in Pali for womb. So he translates Yoniso as womb-like, nurturing, protecting. Mana is mind. And kara is from the same word as kama, which means action. So taken all together, he puts it together as an active quality of mind that is nurturing and supporting. I love that. If you can not think about, but get a sense of 
bringing attention to any experience with that quality of attention. It's active. You really connect with what's happening, with, but in a way that's nurturing and supporting, supportive of being fully present with an open heart. That's the quality of mindfulness, an active quality of mind that meets the experience fully, but in a way that is nurturing, that's non-judging, that's non-reactive, that supports our open-hearted presence. This is, hopefully it's not intellectual because it's so important, so if you can take the words in, but then really play with that quality of attention in your experience, in the attention you bring to the breath, the intention you bring to your steps in walking, or as we open up to physical sensation, to whatever it is that's arising, emotions, whatever. So this quality of nurturing, active attention has a couple of aspects to it that helps us really be with the experience rather than our interpretation. And the first aspect we call bare attention And that's really seeing the difference between that sound and all the mental extrapolations that go on with it. Which it seems obvious when we're sitting here talking about it and we're not caught up in something. But really, just watch with your breath. The difference between bringing that full open-hearted attention to the bare experience of the sensation of the breath without confusing that with the interpretations and stories we tell about it. It's very interesting to begin to see the difference. So it's like bringing a sense of wonder, of freshness, no preconceptions. Someone sent me this birthday card last year. I don't know if you can see it. It's a picture of a little baby, like this wide-eyed, open-mouthed baby. Like, wow, what's that? That's the kind of attention. Not, ah, another breath. Oh, this breath, it's tight, it's controlling, I can't really get it deep, it really shows what a shallow person I am, it's all tight, you know. Oh, it's just sensation. Wow, what's that sensation? And not another breath. Now it's deep, it's flowing like a waterfall, I'm connecting with all the molecules of air in the universe, this really shows how a sense of oneness, and it's just good, I'm doing my yoga, it's really bearing fruit. It's, It's just sensation. There's just pressure or coolness or tingling. And then we get often into the neutral. It's like, that's not very interesting. I've got to spend all day in and out, in and out, pressure, tingling, coolness. Where's the uh, fruit of this? You know, I didn't come here for that. Pressure, tingling, coolness, pressure, tingling, coolness. But if each time it's a fresh, fresh pressure. It's not like last time it was pressure, tingling, coolness. Now I know this next time it's going to be pressure, tingling, coolness. Just meet it with this freshness, the bare attention, and in that moment, what's the problem? Whether it's tight, whether it's loose, whether it's pressure, whether it's tingling, it doesn't matter. That quality of open-hearted attention is all we need, in that we are able to recognize again our basic goodness, open to discover rather than to judge. And really for those well, whether you've been on the Metta retreat or not, maybe you can get a sense of how this quality of mindful attention is actually imbued with Metta. Metta having the qualities of inclusiveness, non-reactivity, real connectedness, real kindness, non-judging. That's the way we meet each experience. Non-manipulating and inclusive And this is the next aspect, meeting the bare sense experience itself and not discriminating. As true as Sylvia said this morning, this is where the instructions start to sound paradoxical because we're saying just come back to the breath. And in this, that is a discrimination. It's saying for right now, I'm choosing the breath as more important to pay attention to than anything else. But if you can see that that's a skillful means only to bring in a steadiness of focus, as she said this morning, so we can then open to everything else. Don't get into the habit of thinking somehow the breath is a superior experience to knee pain. It's not. 
but we need to develop some steadiness of attention to be able to open to knee pain or bliss or boredom or excitement and to be able to be fully present with the bare experience and being able to tell the difference between it and our reactions. So that's why we need some steadiness of mind. But in this quality of open-hearted, wise attention, it's also non-discriminating. So as you'll see as the instructions go on, we're with the breathing and a knee pain arises. We don't say, knee pain, you know, I really, I don't want to really be with that. I think I'll just stay with the breath until something nice comes along. It's not like, well, I've seen, I've seen that knee pain before. I know all about it, so I don't really need to investigate it. I think I'll just hang out here in the breath. You see, I mean, our discrimination will generally come from this sense of going to what we like and avoiding what we don't like. Or if you have a, a perverse mind that's drawn by the unpleasant, the reverse, going to what we don't like and ignoring what's pleasant because it's a mistake. Either one, it doesn't matter. One's not better than the other. But the quality of open-hearted, mindful attention doesn't discriminate. Something arises, fine. Meet it fully. No judging. It goes away, fine. It's gone away. Now, can you imagine that with no matter what comes up? No matter what? No exceptions. There are no exceptions. Some great, incredible meditation experience is not an exception. Some really awful pain, some really yucky emotion is not an exception. Whatever arises, we learn how to meet it just as it is in this moment, open-hearted, no judging, notice what it does, notice the reactions of mind without believing them, let it go when it goes. It's quite a challenge. We're just not used to it. We're afraid of the difficult. We get really lost in the pleasant, of course. That's what we do. And so a lot of the form of the practice and the concentration is to help us be able to cut through these patterns of discriminating and just rest at ease in whatever arises. Just what presents itself. This cutting through our basic habit is one of the reasons I feel retreats can be so uncomfortable. You know how it is to break a habit. Even though the habit itself is engendering suffering, it's comfortable. It's familiar. And I, quite a few people have said in groups, in, in moving into some experience or some space that's unfamiliar, even though in itself it's not particularly unpleasant, just the unfamiliarity brings up a, a real thrill of fear. And that fear in itself is, oh, something's wrong. I better fix this, because that's how we respond to fear. So a lot of the way the retreat is structured, the way we keep saying, just meet what's happening, is is breaking our habit of avoiding the unpleasant by just moving into it. It's breaking our habit of holding on to the pleasant by allowing it to go away. And at times that's very uncomfortable. But that's okay. (laughs) So, bringing our full gentle attention to the experience just as it is, You'll see with physical discomfort, that's a really good place. And uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but either tomorrow or the next day, that's where we'll go with the instructions in the morning. That's a great place to really watch and notice the difference between the bare experience, the physical discomfort of the sensations, and all the response and reaction of heart and mind around it, and to see how intertwined they can get to see how hard it can be to tell the difference. Because just to me, in my experience, as soon as I label something pain, there's already a whole lot of baggage connected to the way I perceive that experience. So when I have like a sharp feeling in my knee, if I move my attention there and go, oh, sharpness, that's one thing. If I move my attention there and go pain, there's already a mental reaction of, of fear, of holding back of judgment just in the way I label it. You see how subtle it can get. So it's not to to judge ourselves that that happens. It's more to use the discomfort not to martyr yourself 
And, and this practice, we're not glorifying discomfort either. I'll talk about the comfortable in a minute. It's both. But to be able to just move to the discomfort and see if you can just for a moment touch it lovingly with the attention just as it is free of preconceptions. It's not easy. You know, pain in the shoulders translates as tension, translates into the way I live my life and all the things I have in my job and the way I respond to myself and the way I hold back from other people and how shy I am and on and on and on when it's just, you know, tightness or pressure. Or I uh, have experience with headaches and since I was a teenager, from time to time I get really debilitating headaches, not migraines, but but the kind that I can't really function too well. And I can sort of deal with other pain, but headaches, I always really hate it. It's like some way, they're such a veil on experience that I just would be lost in some kind of aversive snit whenever I had a headache. There was, there was no sense of being able to see through it. It colored the whole world. And just in the last few years, really being able to experience like some days when I'm teaching, waking up and having one of these throbbing headaches and watching my, my oh, headache, I oh, know, how am I going to get through the day? I have to talk to people all day. I have to be nice, you know. I can't be snarly. I can't be in an aversive snit, you know. And just watching myself projecting that headache and how I'm going to react and everything that's going to happen through the whole day within the first two minutes of the headache coming on. And we do that, don't we? You have a pain in your knee and you're already in the hospital having arthroscopic surgery and it's only been two minutes. And what are you going to do with the rest of the day? You know, and it can only go downhill from here. When To watch all of that and then deliberately bring my attention to the actual sensations. It's so amazing because they're just what they are. Oh yeah, there's throbbing and tightness. And when I'm really present with it, that's all it is. I pull back a little bit, and in comes throbbing tightness. Oh, my God, how am I going to get through the day? Oh, yeah, an aversion and fear. Come back to the throbbing and the tightness. Now, it's not magic. It doesn't make it go away. And a lot of times people get into evaluating. It kind of slips in. If I'm really mindful properly, the unpleasant thing's going to go away. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it does. I mean, eventually it always will but not on our time frame. And that's not a way to evaluate. But I've really come to where I can have this throbbing headache and at the same time be in touch with basic goodness, with the fact of really one way of thinking of that is our basic okayness, no matter what's happening, to really connect with that in yourself. And we can use our little pains here to just experiment with how to do that, how to tell the difference between the second arrow and the simple, bare, unpleasant sensation. So that's why when we say, if you have a little unpleasant sensation, don't move that first second. Because what you're really doing is depriving yourself of an opportunity to discover that peace is available. It's not about being macho. It's not about, as I said, winning an Olympic gold medal in the longest sitting that you do here or the slowest walking. It's not about that. It's about using whatever arises as our opportunity to touch basic goodness through the avenue of opening into it just as it is, rather than getting lost in the second arrow and all our stories. I just want to give an example of how we do the same thing with the pleasant, where we mistake the pleasant feeling we get entranced by the pleasant feeling. In fact, we get so entranced, we often don't even notice there is any pleasant feeling. And we think the thing that is pleasant is the best thing that ever happened and that our happiness depends on holding on to that forever because we don't know how to see what's really happening. A sense experience, pleasant, clinging to the pleasant and thinking now life is great. There's a story from the Buddha's time that I really like. It shows this about his, the Buddha had an attendant for the last 25 years or so of his life named Ananda, who was a monk, who was apparently a a wonderful attendant and very loving. He was always, he was just very kind, very supportive of all the people who came to the Buddha for teaching, really trying to get them access to the Buddha. He's just a kind person. 
So in this story, Ananda was sent on a mission uh, by the Buddha, and he passed by a well near a village, and he saw Pakati, a young outcast woman. You know, in India they have these different castes, the lowest caste, the untouchables. There's all these rules, you know, that you wouldn't take any food from an untouchable, you wouldn't go near them and stuff. And he saw her, and he asked her for a drink of water. It's permitted for monks to ask for water. No, they can't ask for other things. And she said, Oh, monk, I'm too humbly born to give you water to drink. Don't ask any service of me lest you be contaminated, for I'm of low caste. And Ananda said, I'm not asking for your caste. I'm just asking for water. And her heart leapt so joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. And he thanked her and went away. But she followed him at a distance. And she heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, so she went to the Buddha and she said, Oh Lord, help me and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells so that I may see him and minister unto him because I love Ananda. And you see what happened. The Blessed One, that's the Buddha, understood her emotions of her heart at once and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards you and practice it towards others. You see the basic mistake that we always make. There was so much pleasure, so much happiness at his kindness, and immediately we make the leap from the pleasant sensation to the thing that engendered it, and now I have to have Ananda for the rest of my life because I feel so pleasant, because, you know, he he took water from me. And you see, really, that's how we mess up our lives, isn't it? Somebody does something nice, you know, so I've got to have this person, I've got to, you know, have this thing, I've got to have this car, whatever, and I'll do anything to get it, because it's going to make me happy for the rest of my life. And it's just pleasant feeling, which, again, is sort of like the breath, just, you know, tingling in pressure, like, oh... I like, it's a much better story. Ananda's so wonderful. Let me minister unto him. Let me follow him around. He's pleasant feeling, you're saying? It's just pleasant feeling? I'm just attached to pleasant feeling? It doesn't make such a good story. Are we willing to give up the stories in order to touch our peace? What's interesting is a lot of the time, no, we're not. We'd much rather hold on to the story even though it keeps us spinning. It's really like running after the pleasant. The image that always comes to me is like a hamster on one of those hamster wheels. Like we're running, running, running. And the faster we go, the more dissatisfying we experience this because we never get there. Because even if we get something pleasant, sure, it's nice, no one's debating that, but it doesn't last. So then we have to run after something else and something else run away from the unpleasant. But sometimes, you know, we, we don't even know it's a story, or we do know, but uh, can't quite put it down yet. So that's okay. That's why we practice. And that's the power of this aspect of mindfulness or wise attention, is that, okay, in this moment, I can't put down the story. Well, now there's the next moment. And you don't have to think about it or figure it out, but just bring your attention to the bare experience that's happening and everything else takes care of itself. You'll notice if it's pleasant or unpleasant, or you'll notice that there's a reaction, or you'll notice that there's suffering, or you'll just be able to touch that breath and there's no big bliss, there's no big story, it's just simply what it is. And in that, we again can rest at ease in whatever arises. I think really the reason we don't recognize it so much is because it's so simple and so close and so present, just this total awareness, total presence, and we're looking for fireworks. So notice, through these days, moments, little moments, when you're feeling really present and awake, there's no problem. But nothing special is going on. You're having a cup of tea, or you're just feeling a breath, or just feeling your foot as you take a step, 
just lying down in bed, brushing your teeth, whatever it is, but one of those moments where you're really exquisitely present, and that's all. Let it in. Learn to begin to recognize it, because these are the intimations. These are sort of the, the guideposts that will bring us in more deeply to trust and rest in the peace that can be available when we stop manipulating and fighting and trying to control. The Dalai Lama said, why do we endeavor to discover the present moment? Because it is the only place where you will know love. It's the only place where we will know love. It's the only place where we can awaken to the true potential for peace and ease, no matter what's happening. So that's our practice. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. So thank you all. So there's a period for walking, and then the last sitting of the evening together is at 9.15. And tonight, as in the past retreat, hopefully, right, <laughs> the beginning of the sitting will have um, be guided in a metta chant. And there are, for those of you who've just come... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.